You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, guys, last week, uh, if you were here, you realized that we, were, we did the penultimate <laughs> sermon for this whole series on the Gospel of Mark. Today, we are landing the plane. We are coming to the end of the series that we started uh, way back. When did we start this? It was in the fall, maybe? And we've been uh, walking through it ever since. And it's been, for those of you who've, who've been with us through this entire series, um, for me, it's been a real encouragement to walk through this kind of week by week to study in order to, to kind of hand it over to you. And I think my own faith has been challenged a lot in, in an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And as I've mentioned before, the, the Gospel of Mark was written to early Christ followers um, who most likely, it seems, were, were kind of trying to live a double life, a life of, of giving verbal um, uh, recognition and understanding of, of who Jesus is, but not really allowing it to affect the way they were living their lives. And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see the disciples themselves being challenged and challenged and challenged. We see the disciples themselves in the, the we learned about the soils in, in Mark chapter 4, and the, the disciples seem to be the bad soil. They seem to be the soil that, that took ground pretty good at first, but then they just keep, they start to doubt, they start to walk away. Peter, as we saw, uh, denies Jesus three times. And these are the people that started the church. Isn't that an encouragement? Isn't that an encouragement? That's what I love about Scripture. Whether it's looking at the Psalms, whether it's looking at the heroes of the faith, we see something that we can identify and go, okay, I can be a part of this. <laughs> this is something that I can fit into quite well. The Bible does not blur over failures. It does not blur over troubles. It does not blur over doubt. It says, bring all those things and you are still welcome into this very messy, broken church. That's why we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We spur each other on because that's what it means to be the church. Well, we're going to finish off the gospel today and it is an abrupt ending. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the way the other Gospels end, but Mark does it quite differently and typical to Mark uh, fashion. It's a very strange way to end the Gospel. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read uh, just eight verses this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought, brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And in typical angel fashion, don't be alarmed. He said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will meet him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
Jesus, I pray you would speak to us through this text this morning, which maybe strikes us as a little odd compared to the way we, we recognize a story normally in the Gospels. So I pray that you would use Mark's uh, telling of this story as an encouragement to us this morning. However we've come here this morning, whatever we're expecting this morning, I pray that you would speak to us and challenge us in some way through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. First of all, let's talk about the final words that most of you probably have in your Bibles. Most of you probably have something that says, uh, after verse 8, probably says something along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts do not have this section, and then it has a whole other section of verses. Mine says uh, in, the, in the NIV, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. So almost without exception, the New Testament scholars believe that what comes after verse 8 was not originally written by Mark. And there's some good reasons to, to think that way. Uh, one is that for the first four centuries, nobody in the church believed, none of the, none of the church fathers, nobody who was teaching in the church for the first four centuries believed that anything that came after verse 8 was actually written by Mark. It was, it was rarely used. Another good reason to, to believe that those verses are not a part of what Mark wrote is that it, it appears, if you read it like this kind of quick throwing together all of all these verses, bits of Acts, bits of some of the other uh, Gospels, and it's just kind of all thrown together. The other thing is that it's, it's kind of written in a way that Mark does not write. It's not written in the same kind of Greek. It's not written in a fashion that Mark actually wrote in. So almost all scholars today believe that everything that comes after verse 8 in your Bibles was probably not written by Mark. Now, here's the question. Why would anyone think you need to add to the Gospel of Mark? Any ideas? Why do you think when it ends, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb? That's not happy sounding. They fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why might someone go, that's not good. <laughs> we need to add to that. I th oh, I think it's evident, right? That's not how you end a, a gospel. Like, think of the other ones. Think of they, they show up, they see Jesus again. They, 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 they go out and they proclaim with boldness the gospel. But I tell you, I, I like that Mark writes it this way. Again, I can identify with the way that these women uh, respond. Uh, and actually, it, it actually helps us understand the truth of what Mark has written. There, there's, there's scholars talk about um, the fact that over time, people will often change what's written in, in, in old text to make it sound easier, more palatable. But the fact that Mark's ends so abruptly is a good proof that it's quite accurate, that that's most likely what happened. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell us that the women followers of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning, they found the tomb empty. They heard a message from the angel. Um, they actually got a message, like, technically, from Jesus through the angel. And, and in all of those accounts, it's not surprising to find that Mark, Mark's is the shortest. As we've read through Mark, uh, we've recognized he uses the word immediately more than any other writer in the New Testament. And he uses it, there's one chapter, he uses it like 14 times, like just immediately, and then this, and then this. And it's no surprise that Mark is the shortest gospel. This is, this is the short version 
for us. So it's, it's not really a surprise that he ends the gospel uh, in this fashion. But I think there's some, some great challenges that we can walk through, uh, that we can walk away with this morning, just from this, this quick little narrative of the women showing up, uh, the words of the angel, and actually the way that they head out. The first is this, that the empty tomb is a challenge to our worldview. The empty tomb is a challenge to our worldview. The women show up. The angel says, look, see, go. <laughs> look, see, go. Because you are, about, you are leaving with some information that is drastically different than you came with. The women came thinking it was over. They left thinking the lid of the cosmos had been popped open. There, there's a, a difference that was going to hit history. This ending is different than, than, than what they would have expected. In, in the next 200 years, this news of an empty tomb was going to conquer Rome. It was going to completely overtake the empire. It's interesting that, that most people that, that you know outside of this building do not have a good reason for why Christianity is as big as it is and why it spread. People outside this building don't have a good, accurate reason for why something that happened with a backwoods prophet who proclaimed all these things, who was crucified by Rome, why the, his following burst globally and historically. People outside of the story of the gospel don't, don't have a good reason for that. Especially considering the fact that all other leaders that make those kind of proclamations and died the way he died, died and they stayed there. But there's something different about Jesus. So Jesus challenges our thinking. He rose from the dead. That, that's why every recording of the events and the records of the gospel have names in them. Myth is not so accurate as the gospels. To name names and places because it actually took place. It, it's a marking that it's history and not myth. Mark's point is, I've done my work. Go and ask these people who saw it because they're still around. Now, there's another point here in this gospel narrative that we make every single Easter Sunday, but we might as well make it again because we're talking about the resurrection. Is that he records women coming to the tomb and going out and proclaiming. That is important because all women always tell the truth. All the time. Sadly, it was actually assumed in the days that the Gospels were written that the exact opposite was true. That women could not be trusted. That women got hysterical and their words, their, their words would not even be permitted in court. Who can trust a woman? I'm quoting. No tweets. Just 80 years after Jesus was alive, there was a, a, a Greek philosopher named Celsus. I think I got a good... Uh, yeah. He lived around 80 years after Jesus was alive, and he was not a fan of Christianity. And his strongest argument against Christianity was that women were the first ones to proclaim it. Around the time many of the Gospels were being written, it was kind of getting around that you can't trust women. That was one of his main arguments. Now, he was, he was really echoing the culture of his time, which marginalized women and did not buy their testimony. But that points to the validity of Mark's work, the truth of his story. If Mark wanted to convince a, a patriarchal society of the validity of the resurrection accounts, the last thing he would have done is recorded the fact that the women went to the tomb and came out proclaiming it. Or in this case, in Mark, came out afraid. 
As we know, the Apostle Paul goes into great uh, detail in 1 Corinthians 15, naming names, naming places, people who were, who were still alive during his writing. There's the movement itself with which out the resurrection cannot be explained. There was no body produced by the Jews. There was no body found by the Romans. Everyone who claimed that they saw the resurrected Jesus died with that proclamation on their lips. Why? Because it gave them a strength to have seen the risen Christ. It, it fueled them and gave them a strength to face death itself. Philippians 1.21, Paul writes this, While in prison, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Romans 8, verse 11, he says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Jesus himself in John 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, he went on to prove that. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. This is why the church could not be snuffed out in the first century. This is why Rome could threaten and threaten and threaten. And those who saw Jesus kept marching forward and saying, I believe in the resurrected Christ. It's why torture and persecution and murder could not make Christians give in to the demands of Rome. What can you take that Jesus hasn't already redeemed? Rome, you can't take anything from me. So, so here's the thing. If we fear death, if, if we, we face death, if we spend our money and our time and, and worry consumed with beating death, trying to immortalize ourselves, then the empty tomb is a challenge to us. What do you fear that Christ has not conquered? What do you fear that Christ has not redeemed? If we spend our lives in worry, the empty tomb is a challenge to us. Psalms 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Never is that more true than after the resurrection and the promise of resurrection. Hebrews 13 6 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can COVID take away from me that Christ has not saved me from? What can the government take from me that God has, that I have not already devoted to God because he is my redeemer? Anyone who is going to approach the empty tomb will be changed, will be challenged, challenged to leave differently, challenged to leave changed. The empty tomb also challenges our sin. But, but it challenges our sin not necessarily in the way that we would, would think. What we might expect is not what we receive. Mary Magdalene, we know that she had been delivered from, from seven demons, we learn in, in Luke 8.2. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and, and, and Salome. For, for the most part, their claim to fame is that they were there for the crucifixion and then they were there after his resurrection. They are named for the same reason all the other ones are and places are so that people could check the facts. But they come there bringing spices. They didn't bring spices. Spices was not uh, for preserving the body. The Jews did not believe or practice the preservation of the body. They would normally allow bodies to, to decompose and then place their bones in an ossuary or what we call a bone box. So these spices were meant to hide smell. They were basically meant to put a nice perfumey smell over death. Now, what does that tell us? They were not expecting resurrection. They were not expecting what they came across. An empty tomb was not what they thought they were going to encounter. 
I wonder often when we come to church on a Sunday, the way we come and the way we leave is if we think we're just going to come and see an empty tomb or whether we're coming to worship a resurrected Christ. How do we leave? How do we approach? Do we approach an empty tomb and celebrate or do we approach thinking, let's just throw some nice perfume over it for a little while? They were approaching the tomb thinking that Jesus failed. They were approaching the, the, the tomb believing they were still captives to sin and that sin had won again. Rome, darkness had done what it always does. They thought they were about to come across a stone that would not be able to move. Who's going to move that stone? They weren't expecting resurrection. They were expecting Jesus dead in a tomb. I love in verse 4, it says that, that when they arrived, they looked up. Earlier in Mark, when, when that phrase, is, it's, a, it's a great phrase in the Greek. It, it, it seems so simple, like a, a simple physical action, but it actually is loaded with meaning. Anytime Mark use, has used that in his gospel, they looked up or he looked up, it's always used right before God is about to do something miraculous. So in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples and a miracle takes place. In Mark chapter 7, verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephthala, Ephthala, which means be opened, and he healed a man of blindness. It's, the word in Greek is anablepo. It's, it means look up because God's about to do something amazing. Look up because a miracle is about to take place. Something unexpected is about to happen. And the doubt that you arrived with is about to be a memory. So he challenges, the, he challenges doubt. He challenges sin in her life. He's, he's put to death sin and its power, power. Ladies, so leave this place changed. Leave this place believing in the resurrected Christ. And, and I love this, and go tell the disciples and, and Peter. Peter gets his own category. Doesn't that make sense? Peter needs his own category. Now, most people, most scholars believe that Peter's actually the one who, who kind of gave the majority of the story to Mark to write down, so it makes sense. And, and even me. <laughs> Sin does not disqualify you, Peter. It's a challenge to you. If you walked in here this morning and said, I got all this stuff built up, then the, then the empty tomb is a challenge to you. Tell his disciples and Peter. Tell his, tell his disciples and Brad. Tell his disciples and Alex. Tell his disciples and Val. Everybody is welcome in because of the empty tomb and sin no longer has power over you. It proves that we're in need of a doctor, yes, but it also gives us the cure. The great physician has arrived. And this, this angel dressed in white says, do you see? Do you see what's happening here? Now go and tell. And don't, don't forget the one who thinks that he's beyond this. Don't forget the one who's probably crying in a corner in fetal position because he denied Jesus three times. Even Peter is saved because of the resurrected Christ. He said he would rise and he has. This was always meant to take place. So now go and change the sadness of his friends to joy. Go and change their fear to strength. Go and tell those who, who pulled away that Jesus is ready to welcome them back. I love that in verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. <laughs> Peter, you mean Peter who, is, who, is, who rejected Jesus? Yeah, even, even Peter. Peter who had two more chances to stop rejecting Jesus? Yeah. Who three times and then threw up curses? Yes. I don't care how you came here. You're not beyond God's grace. 
Peter probably thought that a resurrected Christ, that might not sound like great news right away to, be, to Peter, if you're honest. Oh, I said those things when I thought it was all over. And now he's burst out of the grave. If you're Peter, what do you think is coming? If you know the prophecies of the Old Testament, what do you think is coming? Possibly judgment. Possibly judgment. No, no, no. You go tell Peter. <laughs> Everything has changed. Go tell Peter his past has changed. Go tell Peter who tried his best to distance himself from me that I will never distance myself from him. When we come in on a Sunday, let's not just try to hide the smell of death with some songs to make us feel good for a while. Let's dive in to the empty tomb. Remember that it's empty and run out of there changed. Run out of this place challenged. I think the other thing that the empty tomb challenges us on is, is our ideals. It's kind of like, what is the ideal follower of Jesus? Is it these three? Is it Peter? I'm not sure what model you have of what the perfect Christian looks like, the perfect evangelist who shares the good news. I'm not sure if these ladies match it. Now, we know the story gets out. We know that the gospel moves forward. That's why we're all sitting here. The New Testament tells us the book of, of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, which we're going to be jumping into in the fall. Very excited about that. And, I, and as I mentioned, all of, of world's history since the first half of the first century tells us that the word got out. And that's why we're sitting here. But what happened here? What kind of falling over their feet and feet frightened, keep it to themselves version of evangelism is this. This is not quite Billy Graham. It's not quite the ideal. It's not the power and the conviction that we see in Acts. But this is a version I can identify with. This sounds familiar to me, this version of evangelism. For, for every time that the words were just stuck in my throat when I know I should have shared the gospel with somebody, when I was sweating profusely because I knew I needed to lean in on somebody and, and share my faith. Okay, ladies, go out, run, and tell the world. And they fall over themselves. Go tell the world. Go to Galilee because that's where Jesus is going to be. You know, you know where you've been doing ministry with him for the last three years? Go there. Go and tell the world. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That I get. Afraid for so many reasons. <laughs> the, the angel, their worldview had just exploded. And they are now given the job to tell others the impossible to believe story of a resurrected prophet from the backwoods. Go tell everybody that story. Oh yeah, we'll get right on that. People are waiting to hear this. A story that so many would not believe. A story that they would be persecuted for. That many of them would die for. That some people wouldn't even bother wrestling it with it. They would just dismiss it. It requires so much. Rightly so, the world will realize that to, to say yes to this story is to, to subjugate every other story that people have. Every other story that people walk with to say Jesus rose from the dead is a challenge to that story. I will rule my own life. The resurrected Christ is a challenge to that story. I am beyond love. The empty tomb is a challenge to that story. Darkness will win. The empty tomb is a challenge to that story. To say yes to the empty tomb story is to subjugate every other story to it. It gives us a, a framework within that which we should work. Every other identity, every other pursuit, every other worship is challenged. 
And Mark ends by asking what this, what, what can this possibly look like? Now that, that God has, has blown the lid off the box of the cosmos, revealing, revealing that there is so much more going on, how can I possibly respond? And we see one version, the empty tomb challenges our fears. And what are we going to live for? In light of the empty tomb, will you fear death? Will you fear what, what man can do to you? And I think the answer is yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Absolutely. Look at the way these women explode out of the tomb. I think the reason that this, this ending of, of the, these women, which is, we don't really nail down exactly what took place. It just looks like a lot of fear. It's kind of wide open. But we can easily find ourselves in this story. And, and the question is posed. The question is posed in light of the, the empty tomb challenge on our worldview. In light of the empty tomb's challenge to our sin, and not in a negative way, but the fact that we are welcomed in, as Peter was. A challenge on our ideals of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, and a challenge on how are we going to go out into the world from the empty tomb? What direction will we run in when we come out of the empty tomb? Just straight home? I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to engage with anybody. We're just going to get from the tomb home and we're good. What direction? Who are we going to talk to when we come running out of the tomb? Where will we run? What will we say? Now, why did the women, trembling and bewildered, flee from the tomb, saying nothing to anyone? Why were they acting so afraid? Because they were improvising. They didn't know the script. They didn't know how to make make it happen. Why do we sometimes miss opportunities? Why do I miss opportunities simply to, not just to evangelize with with words by proclaiming, but why do I miss the mark sometimes and get angry when something unexpected happens to me? Why do I miss opportunity to show grace and love and kindness and forgiveness in light of the empty tomb? Because I'm often improvising and sometimes I forget the script. Sometimes I step outside of the story. How many of you ever watched Whose Line Is It Anyway? You shouldn't watch that. It's a horrible show. No. <laughs> Love that show. Uh, back when I was working in a, in a high school, I actually coached a, an improv team, and we would go and compete. We were horrible. But uh, it was fun. Um, but when you do improv, now, for those of you who don't know Whose Line Is It Anyway, it's improv theater. Maybe some of you have, have visited improv theater in Vancouver or, or somewhere else or involved maybe when you were in high school. Um, but the idea is that you're not given a script. You are given a few important things to use to create a story. And you use those to influence the way that the plot and the story goes. And if you use them well, the story goes quite well. It's very entertaining and it's a great adventure. But there's a few rules when you do improv. And if you, any of you have been in improv, you know this. One is there's no blocking. Now what blocking means is if I introduce something new to the scene, you can't just ignore that I did that. So if I say, hey, say hi to my cat, you can't say, you're not holding a cat. That's called blocking. That stops the story from moving forward. One of the other important things that happens when you do improv is that you do all you can to move a story forward. You don't just stand still with the story. You move forward with the story. And, and the way that the actors know how to move a scene forward is by, the, by taking the suggestions that they're given. They've, they've accepted the parameters of the scene and they know how to act within it. For you and I, the parameters of the improvised faith that we live here and now is established with the empty tomb. There are all sorts of issues that we're not 
the case in the first century. All th- sorts of things that you and I face in the world today that we, that we do what's called, one theologian calls it faith improvised. That we, we use all we know about the heart of God. We know all we know about Jesus. We take the empty tomb and we go, how does that give me a script for how I'm going to live out this week? We are the church we are called uh, to be when we live out the animated interpretation of the empty tomb. Uh, One theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, he says it this way. He says, The church is biblical, therefore, when it seeks to embody the words in the power of the Spirit and so become a living commentary. I love that, a living commentary. The church is thus not only the people of the book, but also the lived interpretation of the book. Doctrine only goes so far. Having the right way of thinking only goes so far. But a life that, that, that lives as if the empty tomb is an actual event, not just a, a claim to orthodoxy, that's when we see people's lives change. That's when we see families change. That's when we see societies change. That's when we see churches change. And hey, we, we may run out of the tomb, like the two Marys and Salome, Salome, however you want to say it. I'm not Greek. But that was not their only chance. <laughs> they will go on to witness to many and deliver the news. As, as they, they shared the story with the lived story in the community, the story's power and influence grows, and it brought you here this morning. The question is, will we let the empty tomb challenge our worldview? Will we let the empty two challenge our sin, our ideals, our character, and our fears? I, I think Mark might say something like this. He might say, if we look at the ending of his gospel and go, hey, how come it's not a little neater? I think he might say, what about my gospel thinks, makes you think I'm going to tie a nice bow on the end? What of everything I've shared about the disciples who lived in doubt and failure, but God still used them and still ministered through them and still built his church through them. What about that brokenness makes you think the ending is going to be this nice bow tied? Hey, the tomb is empty, but you and I are still a part of this story. <laughs> you and I are still living a, a faith improvised. To burst out of the empty grave means that life, and it means, uh, it means a future, but it also means, at times, trembling and bewilderment. We ought to step out of the tomb bewildered. At times, we probably should be trembling. But we ought to be trembling in, in a beautiful, respectful fear for the power of God that brought Jesus back from the dead. And that ought to be the framework for how you and I improvise our lives this week. It ought to be the framework when I am in a deep, deep disagreement with someone and there is anger involved and there, my, my identity is being challenged. My immediate understanding of how I'm going to improvise, how I interact with this person, ought to start with the first line and the first scenario, which is the tomb is empty. How I'm going to deal with a financial issue. How I'm going to have to deal with losing a job. How I'm going to have to deal with politics or ideologies that are pushing up against orthodoxy. The first question we ask, how am I going to improvise? How am I going to, how's my faith going to improvise this scene? Is going to take the proclamation that the tomb is empty. 
So I don't know what kind of worldview you might be walking in this week because I'll tell you, the worldview of the world right now is very shaky. It does not have the solidity of an empty tomb. The, the idea of sin today is that sin is unforgivable. If someone is shamed online, there is no forgiveness available. We might have this perfect version of what it means to be a Christian and to follow him. That, Mark does not give us that version. <laughs> he gives us a very straightforward one that we can all identify with. But the empty tomb also challenges the fears that we might walk out of here with. And so, so it's my, my hope, it, it's Josh's hope as well, it, it's Lelania's hope as we minister to your kids, that we would continue to enforce in our lives, we would continue to revisit the empty tomb. Whatever you are using in, in your life, whatever I'm using in my life, to just throw some perfume over, but not actually to experience the empty tomb in our lives. Just go, I'm just going to keep doing some things to keep me busy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend another uh, six hours on Netflix, and I'm going to spend another, th- whatever. Whatever we do to cover up the smell, <laughs> it's time to gut it out with the power of the gospel. It's time to gut it out with the, uh, the understanding of the empty tomb. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to pray. And before you do worship, I'm going to do an announcement or two because <laughs> I missed those. But guys, let's, uh, let's pray together. Jesus, this kind of stuff takes time and it takes work. In a, in a world that is so loud, in a world that tells us to be afraid, in a world that tells us there's no story but what you make it, in, in a world that is quick to shame and slow to forgive, I thank you so much for the empty tomb. I thank you so much that through your death, Jesus, you have produced life for all who will claim it. And so we don't need to search anywhere else. We don't need to search anywhere else to find our identity. We don't need to search anywhere else to find hope. But we can be dragged all over throughout the week. We are going to hardly make it out of this building today. And the, the, the stories of the world are going to start attaching themselves to us. And so I pray for each of us, whatever that takes this week, whether it be in conversation with those who love us and encourage us and walk with us, whether it be in community groups, whether it be in our families, whether it be in our own personal devotion, I pray each morning that we would be revisiting the empty tomb. And that would be the framework for our day. It would be the framework for our week, for the decisions that we're making as we live out this faith improvised based on very um, solid happenings. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that, that our faith is not based on how we feel today. It is based on the fact of your life, death, and resurrection. And we thank you that someday you will return. You will put an end to the reign of darkness. You will put an end to sin. You will put an end to tears. You will put an end to mourning. We look forward to that day. And we do so with joy and anticipation because of the empty tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.